Father, we thank you for your kindness on us. You have been exceedingly merciful, and we ask that you would help us to be instruments of your mercy and your compassion on others for your glory. Help us to rightly think on these subjects, and we pray that you'd help us to apply it, all that your name might be praised all over the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. Did anyone decide to get the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand? Too busy? All right. Um, I, again, I, I can't recommend it enough. I highly recommend that you get the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. If you're finding what we're talking about helpful, just know that we're limited in what we can say in terms of time in this room. So if you want to get a fuller understanding of these things, I highly recommend the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. In chapter 2, which is called In the Hands of the Redeemer, he begins the chapter with the story of a guy named Sam in his church. Sam had a difficult day at work. It was long, it was grueling, and he clocked out and was headed home when suddenly uh, there was a man who stopped him who was in need. And he was saying that his life is in shambles right now. He doesn't even know where he's going to go tonight, where he's going to sleep. And Sam got the sense that this isn't your typical seasoned street person. And so he wanted to be a conduit of help for Sam and, and took him in. He calls his pastor and he says, which is the author, and he says, Pastor, I found this man. I think he really needs help. And so I was thinking about, I'm going to bring him to your house. Uh, is that okay? Is now a good time? And the pastor says, man, I just, I love God's love so much that he would bring this man into your life. Uh, and, and I'm convinced that God never gets the wrong address. And I'm going to be praying for you as you help this man. And so he prays. And then after the prayer, Sam's like, well, I don't think I can do this. And he says, uh, basically, he encourages him that he can. And for weeks, he doesn't just leave him on his own. For weeks, he stands along Sam helping this man uh, deal with the problems that he had, has in his life from a biblical perspective. And in that process, too, Sam was changed, and his wife was changed as well. There's a good introduction to this chapter, because I think a lot of us, we recognize that God uses tools, he uses people, uh, and, and I think that we, we think that God doesn't have very many tools, Right? Which brings us really to our first point in our outline. If they're, they're located, if you don't have an outline, in that back row, and then a second to last back row. Many tools in the toolbox. Many tools in the toolbox. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. So we might be like Sam sometimes where, uh, yeah, I'm going to get you some help. It's not going to be me, but I'm, I'm going to find some help for you. And we often think, that only several people can help people with their spiritual issues. Who lists some of those people who you think uh, people might be tended to kind of just pass the buck along to? Pastors, Pastors elders, elders, deacons, older people. Older people. Uh, some churches will pass them along to a Christian counselor or psychologist. Um, even ACBC is a good resource. And by the way, I'm not suggesting this is always a bad thing like that's pastors are here for your spiritual needs and the deacons are here to help take care of your physical needs and counselors are equipped to deal with some of the 
um, more complicated, tricky stuff as well. But the, the reality is that those aren't the only tools in God's toolbox. God has many, many tools in his toolbox, and that includes people like you. So in Ephesians 4, for example, we see in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Okay, so we'll just stop there for a second. These apostles, prophets, evangelists, I think were offices that were uh, much needed for the early church because they didn't have the New Testament yet. And so the apostles were leading out on teaching this doctrine that Christ had revealed to them. And as the years passed, they would write things or people would write things uh, that they're teaching. And now we have that in the New Testament. So apostles, evangelists, and uh, I'm sorry, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, I, I think were offices specifically for uh, the early church. Now, when I say evangelists, I'm not talking about people who evangelize. I'm specifically talking about people like Timothy, Apollos, uh, Titus. These were people who were acting like delegates to the apostles and doing things for them where they couldn't be. So he would send Timothy to Ephesus. Paul would send uh, Titus, go, plant el- go raise up elders in this area, and so on. Okay? So I think those particular offices um, were for the early church. Shepherds and teachers are who do you think that's talking about? You'll notice that it's not the shepherds and the teachers. It says the shepherds and teachers. Who's that talking about? Pastors. Okay, good. So God has given pastors to the church as a gift. And the purpose of the gift that he's given to the church is in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip you for the work of ministry. And the purpose of that is for building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the end goal, or not the end goal rather, but the end result of what's being talked about in Ephesians 4 is that the church would be built up into Christ. What else do you see there are the results of what's going on in Ephesians 4? Just scan the last uh, few verses. What are some other results of what's going on? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of the head. Good. So we'll be growing together, right? Growing in maturity. Good. What else happens? Look at verse uh, 14. What else is a result? Yeah, Emmy. That we're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Yeah, we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because there's a lot of... Uh, schemes out there from the world and from our spiritual enemy that would try to distract us, right? There's also a unity. There's a growing up that's happening together. In the end of verse 16, there's also saying that it's love. You'll see a loving church. So if you're looking for a church or if you're wanting to have a church that is doctrinally sound and full of love and mature and Christ-like, 
you have to recognize that that doesn't only happen from the pastoral level. It certainly does. Pastors have a responsibility to teach the church correct doctrine and hold the church accountable to particular doctrines. But in this whole concept, Ephesians 4, who's involved in this process? Everyone. Everyone is. So say to yourself right now, I am in ministry. You are in ministry. You're in ministry. I'm not just in ministry. Not just me, Pastor Ola, Pastor Corey, and Pastor Vladimir are in ministry. Every single one of you are in ministry. And it's important that you recognize that. Because the end result of an entire church where everyone is working properly and speaking the truth in love is this maturity. What is the, um, the negative implication of if the church isn't doing that? What if the church isn't doing those things? What should the end result probably be? Yeah. False doctrine in the church, false converts who feel like comfortable because there's no one really encouraging them or holding their feet to the fire. I mean, what are you going to say? Yeah, disunity, there's no growth. Yep. Yeah, sin, run ramp, sin runs rampant, the church could fall apart. So we pray, you know, we pray for some really good things. We pray for a revival, as we should. And you should keep praying for revival. But you should pray for revival and do your ministry. Does that make sense? Like, God, God can and will revive his church, and he will do it through the means of Christians like you, working together in unity to build up the body in Christ. If the church isn't like that, let's say that we bemoan the state of the American church. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. It happened out of decades of the church not speaking the truth in love. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, I'm getting off my soapbox here. God has many tools in his toolbox, and that includes people like you. There's really a great analogy, too, that, uh, that he uses here. It, it's a body. Um, Raise your hand if you've ever had a, like a, one small body part that just knocked you completely out. So like, I'll give an example, like a, a tiny back muscle can make it so that you can't do anything. You can only just like, right, you can just sit around and, and, and be hurt. That's all you can really do. And the, the picture of uh, the body is that every single part of the body needs to be working properly. You're, you can't grow as a person physically if only your bicep is functioning, right? You, you can grow as a person if every part of the body is functioning as the way it's supposed to, right? And this is really kind of a real thing for us right now with uh, Elora is in the hospital. She's fine. She's fine. Um, but last Wednesday, she had a seizure. And the reason she had a seizure was because her sodium, her blood sodium was low. Uh, I didn't know that. There's no detection for blood sodium at home. We were worried about her blood sugar, and we were trying to work on that. But the point is, there's little parts of her body that made it so that her blood sodium was off, and that knocked her out. And in the same way, if parts of the body aren't doing what they're supposed to do in the church, then we're not going to grow as we should. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? It's a big responsibility, but it's also a beautiful privilege because, again, it's not just pastors and teachers who are helping the church grow. It's every one of you all. It's an honor to be able to be used by Christ in that way. So the saying that is in the book that he got, which surely many of you will buy and read along with as we go through this, the statement that he works with in this chapter is that God transforms people's lives as people bring the word of God to them. God transforms people's lives 
as people bring the word of God to them. So far we've covered God transforms people's lives as people. And now let's take a look at your outline where it says, but there is more. There is more. And they'll look at the second part of the sentence. So God transforms people's lives as people bring the word of God to them. Bring the word of God to them. So the way that we grow in Christ is not simply by loving one another in action. We can do that, right? But why is that not going to necessarily make us more Christ-like as a whole, just simply by doing loving acts toward each other? Emmy. Yeah, amen. Emmy says people can do that ignorant of the word of God. And you have other churches that are other, at least organizations that put us to shame when it comes to doing what Christ commanded when it comes to taking care of the least of these, taking care of widows and orphans. And yet they don't have a very strong gospel or doctrine. And so people may be doing things, but not growing in Christ, right? And so we should definitely be loving each other and doing acts of love toward one another. And at the same time, we also need to be bringing the word of God to each other, right? Because that's really what will help us grow spiritually is God's word. Let's take a look real quick at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And by the way, this is what we're talking about right now is the speaking the truth and love component. In Isaiah 55, we get this vision of what will happen if God's word is proclaimed and counseled and talked about as it should be. So let's take a look at verse 10. Isaiah 55, verse 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Well, the author uh, in this section, God's Monsoon, the third section, he talks about how he spent a lot of time in, in North India. And in North India, certain parts of the year, it's a very dry and very hot place. He said that he had seen it hit like 130 or something like that in, in North India. And however, the people who live there understand that there is hope that it's not going to stay that way because when it's monsoon season, these monsoons will come across the land, and as it rains, then suddenly the land becomes lush and beautiful and no longer arid, but green, okay? So that's a, a good illustration, and this illustration that's given to us in Isaiah as well, as that just as water does that to the earth, so God's word is gonna do that to the world, to the world. And that includes his church, of course, right? The question really is, do we really believe in the power of God's word? Do we believe in God's word as being the monsoon that can take dry and arid and unlivable conditions and make it lush and gorgeous and beautiful, right? I mean, just ask yourself that. You don't need to answer it to me, but do I really believe that? And do we believe that in action, right? 
what is something that people, what, what might we do that demonstrates that we don't really believe that? Not really, not really, really believe that. What might we do that demonstrates we don't really believe that? Yeah, so skip, skip reading the Bible, not thinking the church is very important. What else? Yeah, not having any fellowship. You're just trying to figure it out on your own. You're not trying to get counsel from people. Christian? Not sharing your faith. Not sharing your faith, right? Absolutely. So while we're talking about this in the context of um, church growth spiritually, not num- numerically, church growth spiritually, absolutely, it also applies to church growth numerically, right? So we bemoan the concept, man, just people are not coming to Christ. Our church is not growing very much. Well, is everyone sharing the word of Christ as they should be? Yes, God will get his elect, but he does it through his churches proclaiming the gospel. And if we believe that he did that, then we would just do it all the time. We would just say, you know, without any fear, understanding that God can regenerate anyone in any moment that he desires, just keep sharing the gospel with people, right? Another thing when it comes to the concept of counseling uh, or just everyday life, we might just give advice. We may just give what we heard from somebody and just kind of stay on the surface level of things and, and not really think about the reality that God's word can change things. God's word does change things. Here's the thing. Uh, let's say that somebody comes up to you and says, man, I, just, I caught my 14-year-old son looking at pornography. Or your golf buddy, he uses this analogy in, this, in his book, uh, tells you he's this close to divorcing his wife. Whatever the case is, what, what you're going to do at that point is ministry. It's counsel. It may not be good ministry or counsel, but it's ministry or counsel. Because you're not, you're not just going to sit there and say, hmm, like, you're going to probably try to give advice, right? And it's interesting that we recognize that, that that's true, and yet we have to recognize that we should be preparing for this more, right? What if one of our pastors came up to the pulpit, and they were just like, hey, I didn't really have time to prepare today, so we're just going to just kind of wing it. How would you feel about that? doesn't care about the word of God, you may storm the pulpit and say, get this man out of here. And as you should, right? As because we recognize how important it is that whoever's preaching the word of God put time into it, studied it, prepared well for it. Now, do we place that type of care when it comes to the counsel that we give to people? Or do we just kind of fly off the seat of our pants? Now, the reality is when someone is facing you with that situation, you can't just like, Give me four hours, right? And then just wait right there. So what should you do because you can't really do that? Listen, listen to the person, amen? Listen, listen to the whole, the whole situation. Good, yeah, listen, ask good questions, good. What about before, yeah? Good. Amen, amen. So. Good, so ask for clarity, ask clarifying questions so you understand it completely. Julian. Yeah, point him to someone who can, good. Okay, these are good answers. I'm going for a different, uh, yeah, Tori. 
Prepare for any situation beforehand. Know, know the word of God so well that when somebody says something, you already know where to turn your Bible to. Again, should only pastors have that ability? Uh, everyone should have that ability. And no, you're not going to have that immediately. Uh, but you, as you mature as a Christian and as you take studying the word of God seriously, you should know. And many situations, when someone's saying, man, I am so anxious about test results that are coming up, you should know how you can encourage them. So it takes a lot of preparation. All the answers you gave, good. If you're worried about giving bad counsel, sit on it. Don't just like give good, don't give bad counsel just to say something. But to Tori's point, the more that you know your word and the more you prepare for these things, the better equipped you'll be to be a minister of God's word. Now, Isaiah 55 should give us a lot of encouragement, understanding that God's monsoon of his word can cause great flourishing in his church, and it can bring many more to salvation and grow his church even more. Now, the question in this next one, answers encyclopedias and outlines, is how do we use the word of God in order to help someone going through something? And the reason why the, 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 head, the header there says like encyclopedias and outlines is that what we might have a tendency to do is try to treat the Bible like it's an encyclopedia. Uh, so when someone says, I'm anxious, you pull out your concordance for anxiety, okay? And I'm actually gonna do that right now just to give us a, a real example of what can happen if we do this. Someone is saying, man, I'm just, I'm, I can't sleep at night because um, I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And we may pull up some verses that say things like, don't be anxious about anything, pray. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, God gave us a spirit, not a fear. What are, you, what are you being anxious for? You don't have a spirit of fear. Like, and you can just start wailing on them with a word that says, don't be anxious. And if you're feeling anxious and someone says, don't be anxious. <laughs> what's that, how's that gonna help you, do you think? Because you, you're, as a, as a Christian, you know I shouldn't be anxious. You already know I should trust God. And so we, get, we have to be careful not to treat the Bible as an encyclopedia where we just flip to anxiety and just read the article. In encyclopedias, an article doesn't really um, necessarily relate to other things. Aardvark doesn't necessarily relate to uh, nuclear proliferation, okay? So the idea is what we need to do is not treat the word of God like that. Uh, or we, we may even try to be more sophisticated and say, oh, it's a systematic theology on anxiety, right? We need to understand that the concept of anxiety is part of a much larger picture. What is the Bible ultimately about? Good, good. Um, unpack that a little bit. It's about Jesus. Make that a longer statement. Yeah. Yeah, there's... So yeah, the relationship between God and his people and Jesus um, bridging the gap, bringing unity and reconciliation between God and, and people. Yes, Michael. Yeah, creation, fall, and redemption. That's a good structure of understanding the Bible. Yep. Yeah, so kind of showing us how things really are. Because the world, 
observes the world and it's, they're wrong about how they're seeing things. But the Bible shows, shows us how things really are beyond what we can see. Yeah, it shows us how Christ is critical. So these are all great examples of how we should be treating the word of God when we're helping people. Which brings us to our next area. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. And you essentially hit on that already. But the idea here is that we need to think through these concepts in the whole story of the Bible. So let's think through that as a, as a thought experiment, right? So let's say that um, you have a couple. They're, they come to you, they need help, and they, they, they say that we're, we're struggling. Like, we, we just can't figure it out. Um, they're at a certain point where they just don't want to communicate with each other. They don't want to talk. One of them really just wants to get a divorce, and they're looking for a pastor to sign off on it, right? So... What is that story in the context of the entire scripture? How does that fit into the entire scripture? Just what comes to mind? It's sin. Good. What else? Pope. Yeah, it's a broken picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Good. Other thoughts? How does this relate to all of Scripture? And not just, because we could pull up, love your wife, don't divorce, love your husband, submit to him. Any other questions? Right? But that's not the right way to, to minister to people. And so what, what, what other approaches would you take besides just that? Emmy. God has designed marriage that when two people get married, they become one flesh. Mm-hmm. So to, to divorce is to break apart what God has put together. Amen. So a good theology of marriage and understanding that that's when God has put people together, let no man separate that. Good. What else? Christian. As an example, how Israel kept on falling away from God and God loving them so much that he would send a judge, he would send a prophet uh, to bring them back. And they just kept on stumbling, kept on falling. Uh, Hosea is a great example of his relationship with Gomer. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, just talking about how examples of like Hosea and uh, how he was told to marry a, uh, a prostitute. She was unrepentant, kept cheating on him, but was told to keep welcoming her back to love her as a picture of God and his relationship with Israel and ultimately his church. Right. So, yeah, these are good points. Uh, this marital problem, this impending divorce, is in the context of this whole story, this whole narrative of the Bible. The Bible's a story. It's not an encyclopedia. We, we would like it sometimes to be kind of like um, categorized for us and w- just turn to that, that spot in the Bible that talks about um, lust. And it's all right there. And it's all you need. But God purposely did not write it that way. God intended to tell his glorious story of, as Michael said, creation, fall, redemption. So let's just unpack that a little bit. God creates Adam and Eve. They're married to each other. And in this marriage, actually, there is an incredible failure because Adam doesn't seem to be very far away when Eve is tempted by the serpent. And what he should have done, I I heard this from another 
sermon. So actually from Pastor Vladimir, who heard it from another sermon. But, so don't give me credit for this. But um, what Adam should have done, let's say Eve ate of the fruit, and he came up to there. He should have crushed the serpent's head, and he should have taken Eve over to God and say to God, God, she sinned. She deserves your wrath, but I want to die in her place. That should have been what happened. But it didn't happen. Adam failed to lead his wife. Eve failed to submit to God and submit to her husband. She ate the fruit. Adam ate, and Adam's eating it plunged the world into this terrible fall. And ever since then, Adam and Eve, um, ever since Adam and Eve fell, all of their descendants have been born with a sinful nature. Do you think that that sinful nature has anything to do with their marriage problems? Yeah. <laughs> to Bonnie's point, sin. It's sin at the end of the day. We can categorize it. We can talk about communication issues. We can say, well, I am an INTJ and she is an EMT person. But that's not getting to the heart of the issue. That's just making an observation about someone's personality. But we're not called to stay the way we were. We're called to be like Christ. So if Christ was not an introvert, we should try not to be, right? And I am one, so I can, I can commiserate with you. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I am. I'm, I'm going, I'm digressing. So we have the fall. And throughout this fall, God makes a covenant with a people to keep for himself and as he continues to show them such grace and mercy and love and acts as their husband, they continue to sin against him over and over again. And this happens for millennia, to your point. And does that have anything to do with their marriage problems? Of course. Because it's like that's how we were, are to God. So all of these issues are coming down to where really uh, the people deserve to be destroyed, like not just divorced. They, they, need, they deserve to be destroyed by God. And yet, God gives his only son for them. Do you think that has anything to do with their marriage problems? Of course, right? And then now, now, everyone who believes in him, what else is God doing now? That's an important part of the story too. What else is God doing now that Christ has come? Yeah. He's healing that brokenness. Yeah, he's healing that brokenness. He is restoring what was before broken. And what does that look like in a Christian's life? Oh, uh, Andrew, let's go to that, and then we'll go to the next question. Yeah. Uh, he's with us. He's uh, dwelling with us. Yeah. Us, right. Amen. He's dwelling in us. And I think, guys, we, we need to recognize that that's a blessing that the old covenant community did not have, is the Holy Spirit indwelling constantly, constantly convicting of sin, Constantly illuminating God's word to us. Constantly uh, bringing us to repentance. So that's what God's doing as well, right? So he has not only saved us and forgiven us of our sins, but he is returning us into the way that we should be. Do you think that has anything to do with their marriage problems? If they're believers, right? But of course, they need the gospel if they're not believers, just like we need the gospel as believers, And then the end result of all of this is that Christians are going to increasingly mature from degree to degree until the very end when Christ returns and completes the work immediately where his people will no longer have sin. They'll no longer have weakness or tears. They'll be be resurrected and completely perfect, which is what we're leading up to now. And by the way, in Philippians, Paul's running hard after that. 
He's not saying, well, I'm going to be resurrected one day. I'll just do what I'm doing now. He's saying, I like that. I'm going to go hard after that. And Paul is like a ninth degree black belt Christian already. And he's saying, not satisfied with who I am today. I'm going to keep running after who I'm going to be in the resurrection, even though he knows God's going to be the one to ultimately do it. So that's the entire story of the Bible. And whoever you're helping needs that whole story, not just the pithy verses about anger. Don't be angry. I'm angry. Don't be angry. Okay, thank you. I appreciate your help. That's, all, that's what I needed to hear, right? They need more than that. They need to hear things that God is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he doesn't always chide. You know, these are things that people need to hear as well. So let's move on to the next idea here, God's rebar. God's rebar. Uh, I don't really know anything about construction, but the author of this book says that when, when, when builders are laying a huge slab of concrete, what do they put in the concrete? They put rebar. And what's that for? To strengthen the concrete. To give it a, uh, what was that, Gene? Keep it pulled together. Keep it stable. Keep it sturdy. So what we're going to talk about for the next of these is God's rebar for our lives that keep us similarly sturdy and steadfast and strong. Okay. Uh, And the first of God's rebar is God's sovereignty. So we see these themes of um, of these three themes that we're going to go over throughout scripture. And they're intended to make us stronger. They're, They're intended to make us firmer in our situations. So you're going to get some free counseling this morning, right? Who who here is going through something? Anything. Sin struggles, heartaches, um, every hand should be up. So you're going to get some free counseling this morning, okay? Because as we go through God's themes in scripture, they should help. They're they're going to help us through our problems. And the first is, is God's sovereignty. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. And we'll look at verses 34 through 35. Daniel 4, 34 through 35. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon rightly says this. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? He's right there. God is completely in control of everything. He does according to his will among the host of heavens. Nebuchadnezzar did not think that at first because he was the most powerful king on earth. And he thought he was the bee's knees, as the kids say, right? Like nothing could stop him from doing what he wanted. And then God made him insane and then brought him back. And Nebuchadnezzar rightly acknowledges, hey, I don't have dominion. Yahweh does. He does. So how does God's sovereignty help you 
in the problems that you're going through. Yep. Say that again. Knowing that he's in control and not me. Right. Good. A lot of the issues that we have when it comes to anxiety or fear or anger is that we want to control a situation and it's not going according to plan. A lot of marriage problems are like this where either a husband or wife, they're trying to control the situation. They want to control the other person and it's not going according to plan. So when someone acknowledges, I'm not in control, God is. Good. Other thoughts. How does God's sovereignty help you in your situations? Amen. Yeah. Amen. It causes you to rest in it. Absolutely. Uh, trusting in him more. Let's apply it. Let's put it to, I'm sorry, Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. God doesn't change. He is, we can trust his promises. We change, he changes us, but he doesn't change. So let's bring it to brass tacks. You have a married couple. They are so frustrated with their communication that they no longer talk to each other. They'll only murmur a few words about the kids, and now they're coming to you for help. How might God's sovereignty help them in that situation? Or how might telling them about God's sovereignty help them in that situation? Yeah, Julian. Right. God is allowing that to happen. And if God is allowing that to happen, then he is using that for our benefit. Right. Right. If you're a Christian, you can actually say everything that happens to me is for my good. Not everyone can say that, but you have the blessing of being one of God's children. And because you love him and because you're called according to his purpose, even a terrible spouse is going to be used for your good. And you can rest in that. Right. You can say, I'm in this situation, but God put me here. And so why should I be upset? Um, Joe's Jimenez, he's not in here. I think he's in, in Grupo Hispano. But we were going to a conference about God's sovereignty, and he got gum on his shoes, which if you're like a sneakerhead, that is like a terrible thing to happen. <laughs> but he just said, hmm, God is sovereign. Like, what a great attitude that is, right? To say, even me getting gum on my shoe was according to God's perfect plan. And so why worry about it? Why be upset about it? Yeah. Uh, just to add in, is that from my understanding, one of the things I love, especially one of the evangelizing people, is God's forgiveness, right? And being able to rely on his forgiveness. Not to be antinomian about it, but just to trust him because he is forgiven. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. I want to um, put a pin on that for a second because it's the next one. Good, good thinking. Good thinking. So yeah, when it comes to God's sovereignty, you apply that to any situation that you're in and you can recognize that yes, it's a difficult situation and it's not bad to mourn. It's not bad to grieve, but you don't need to worry and you don't need to be wrathful in your situation because the way that your spouse is acting, while sinful it may be, was according to God's perfect plan for you, okay? David knew this well, and we look at Psalm 3 and 4. Do you think David may have needed counseling when, um, when Absalom had rebelled against him 
and was trying to take his throne and hunt him down? I think so. So here's David in a cave in this situation where his son Absalom, his beloved son Absalom, is rebelling against him. I'll just read Psalms 3 and 4. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Incredible, incredible. He was going through a pretty tough time. Tougher than some of the situations that we're facing right now. And yet he's saying, I'm just going to go to sleep because I trust you. I trust you. You're going to deliver me. You're going to take care of this whole situation, God. I trust you. So when, you have, when you're in a situation and you're married to someone who is particularly difficult and you haven't yet realized that you are pretty difficult too, you can just trust that God is doing something. And if they're a believer, you can trust that God is maturing them too. And that may take a long time, but you can know that God promises to take his children and make them more like Christ. And understanding God's sovereignty will give you patience. So whatever you're going through, understand that whatever is going on in your life right now is ultimately for your good, that it wasn't by accident, that God knows what he's doing when he appointed that for you. All of your days have been written in his book. All of your situations are written there. All of your tears are being counted as well. So it's not, we're not supposed to be stoic, like monk-like, no emotions. You read his emotions in Psalm 3 and 4. But in his emotions, he's crying out to God and saying, God, you know what you're doing. I trust completely in you. So that's the first theme that we see that gives us rebar in our difficult circumstances. Take a look at the next section, amazing grace. Amazing grace. God's story is a story of grace. There are themes in scripture as well about God's wrath and justice, absolutely. But in the end, I think we could look at the whole story and see trace God's grace throughout all of it, right? We look at the fall. Adam and Eve, they sin against the holy God who had done nothing but good to them, provided everything for them. They sin against him. Would he not have been just to just crush them right there and start over? But instead, he shows them grace. How does he show Adam and Eve grace? 
Yeah, so, yeah, mercifully doesn't crush him. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Pastor Vladimir preached about that uh, one or two years ago where if God gave them eternal life in their state, then they would have just lived in their sin and lived in this fallen condition forever. So God protects them from that by keeping them out of the garden and not giving them access to the tree of life. That's a good observation as well. Yeah, Emmy. He covers them in skins. Yeah, he shows grace in covering them. They're, they're hiding uh, their nakedness from each other. They're ashamed. He gives them, restores their honor by clothing them. Yes, sir. What, what's your name? Brian. Ru- was it? Brian. Ryan. Ryan, yes, sir. Amen. Uh, as opposed to acting in justice, he calls for them, has a conversation with them. Amen. Uh, and allows them the opportunity to confess. Yeah. He yeah. gives all of that in his grace before, okay, this is the route you took, this is what's going to happen to you. So he gives them that opportunity. That's a great point, Ryan. Like he, he asks them, hey, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is, but he gives them an opportunity to confess their sin to him. And even though he does it imperfectly, because Adam's like, you know that woman you gave me? The, the one I didn't ask for. The, the one you gave me, she kind of told me to eat, right? But even still, God shows them grace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. So a couple things, and I haven't heard that before. So test what Julian is saying about the cool of the day, but it sounds, it sounds good. So I'm going to present it to you, and you, you look at, check his work. Um, but he's saying that cool of the day implies that it was later in the day, like it's cooling down, meaning that God forbore and gave them time to repent. Yeah. Uh, sure. That's always allowed, brother. Yes. Genesis 3, verse 8. And in this, this is the Christian Standard Bible. Okay. Okay. So the Christian Standard Bible, like, actually interprets it as evening breeze, which would imply that this was later in the day. Okay. So essentially the, the Christian Standard Bible study notes uh, give interpretation that that's essentially God showing mercy, showing long-suffering with them, not just immediately crushing them and neither just immediately confronting them, right? And it, 
they encourage us to do the same for others. So uh, I think that there's definitely some credence to that. But beyond that, okay, let's say that he just showed them mercy. He didn't kill them. He took them out of the garden so that they wouldn't live forever in that state, but then he just let them die in their sin. He doesn't only do that. In cursing the serpent, he also promises to fix what they broke. He promises a, a, a way that the serpent would be crushed through the seed of the woman. And that starts our gospel that starts to become increasingly unfolded and revealed throughout all of scripture. And so when we think in, in light of grace, that should impact the way that we act as well. When we realize, uh, this is what Christian was talking about, when we realize the way that God has forgiven us and God has been so gracious to us, how dare we not give that to other people as well? That's our main motivator. Going back to our, our imaginary couple in marriage counseling, they, if they're not being gracious to each other, it's because they are not rightly understanding God's grace on them. When, you're, when you yourself are, not, are struggling with being gracious to people and loving and compassionate and long-suffering, you need to go back to this piece of rebar of God's grace on you. And if you are understanding that God is sovereign and God has been gracious to you, then you will be long-suffering with other people as well. So, uh, Julian, hold that thought, but I got to move on to the next one. Okay. Yeah, no, just uh, tell me after. Okay. So we have God's sovereignty, God's grace. Let's take a look at this next line that says, it's not your party. So he says that in 1978, he did the most brave thing he's ever done. He taught kindergarten. (laughs) Okay. So... He was filling in, they, they started this new school with other Christians and fellow believers and he taught a kindergarten class and somebody in that class wanted to throw a birthday party for uh, their daughter and he said, that's fine. So the mom decorates the whole room and everything is beautiful. They got balloons within balloons tied to every chair. Every spot has party favors except for the one girl whose birthday it is and she's just got tons of gifts in her little spot. And you got little Johnny over here. What do you think Johnny's doing? <sighs> looking at his little party favors, looking at her pile, and he starts, <laughs> and he just keeps doing this to the point now people are noticing that he's doing this and he's about to ruin the party until one of the moms comes up to him and says, Johnny, it's not your party. And brothers and sisters, this is not your party, okay? The reality is God is doing all things for his glory. And when we recognize that God's doing all things for his glory, that also will help us in a situation. Going back to our our married couple when they're struggling, everything that's happening right now is for the glory of God. And I am not the main character of this story. Whenever we are sinning, there is what he calls in the book, we are stealing glory for ourselves. We think that we actually deserve something. We don't deserve anything. We deserve God's wrath, period. Which is why I highly value, when I ask Christian how he's doing, he says, better than I deserve. That's true. And that's, that's true about any single one of us. We're doing better than we deserve. Because God's not doing things for your glory. He's doing things for his. And when we're, okay, let's tie it to the, the married couple in this situation. What often causes one spouse to be upset with the other. Yeah. They're not doing what I want them to do. 
I want this person to be this way. I want them to do things this way. And if they don't, you get very upset. And that's when you're the main character of the story. And you think that you deserve to be glorified in your spouse's actions. That's not the case. That's not the case. When you steal glory, that's when you become sinful. That's when you become upset. When you steal glory, it's really exchanging the truth about God for a lie and thinking that there's something out there better than God himself. That has been the age-old lie. And so when you recognize this is not your story, it's God's, then you will be happy at whatever unfolds. Oh, um, (laughs) Philippians, this is a, a quick detour. I won't even, you can look at it later. But in Philippians, Paul wanted to go share the gospel freely. He didn't want to be in prison because when he's in prison, he can't be a missionary, right? He can't go to other places and bring the gospel where they haven't heard it before. So he's in prison and he says in Philippians, I'm paraphrasing, man, things have been going great since I've been in prison. I've been able to preach the gospel to the guards. It implies that even Caesar's household heard the gospel. And then there's another situation where uh, you have these rivals of Paul who wanted to be apostles too. And they're out there taking advantage of his situation in prison and they're sharing the gospel for their own glory. They're doing it for personal gain. And Paul says, that's great. (laughs) I love that that's happening because at least the gospel's going out while I'm here in prison. Do you have that attitude where you're like, it's not about me. It's not about me being out of prison. It's not, me about, it's not about me getting my own way or getting the goals that I wanted to accomplish completed. It's about God's glory. And anything that God decides to do in his sovereignty and grace is ultimately for his glory. Let's wrap this up with just this idea of a life worth living. Brothers and sisters, your main goal in life is not to reach the top of your career field. Your main goal in life is not to produce the perfect little children according to Uh, Disney Channel, right? Your your goal in life is ultimately to see God glorified. And God mercifully chooses you to be an instrument in his hand. He allows you to be what impacts not just you and your little circle, but potentially the world. You might be that person who encouraged that struggling brother out of his depression, which prompted him to trust God more and eventually made him a missionary to another part of the world. God can use you for that purpose. God uses your speaking the truth as part of his monsoon all over the world. And our job is to not just tell people, don't be anxious. Our job is to tell the story of the Bible to them and remind them, you're not sovereign, God is. And God has been so gracious to you And ultimately, he is doing all things for his glory. And if you embrace those things, not only will that be helpful to you, but you can be helpful to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us of these themes. For many of us, this is not new concept, not new doctrines that we're learning, and yet it revives us afresh to remember that you are not only in control, but you have been so gracious to us. And not only those things, O Lord, but you will accomplish all of your purposes to the praise of your glory. And we ask, Lord, that this would be thick, unbreakable rebar to our souls, but that you would also help us to express these things to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may strengthen them also. God, use all of us 
to grow this church spiritually. Use our words to add to your number every day those who are being saved. All for your namesake. In Christ we pray. Amen. Good job, y'all.